0: Welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WEW one hundred seven point seven LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host Olga Peters, and today we have a great show with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who is one of three representatives to the town of Brattleboro. Hey, Emily. Hi. And we also have with us. Falco Schilling, who is the Advocacy Director with the ACLU Vermont. And for those who don't know what ACLU stands for, it is the American Civil Liberties Union. And Falco, thank you for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And as a a native of of Wyndham County, it's good to be talking to folks from down there. I I grew up down in Saxons River. Um, Yeah, fun fun fact, but speaking to you live uh, from Main Street Montpelier today. (laughs)
0: So nice to have a neighbor in the house. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Um, Felco, I want to start with a theme that Emily and I have been basically circling around since COVID-19 started in March, which is, you know, with this with this pandemic, it highlighted so many cracks in our system. And even though it feels new, it's not new. So many of what we, the issues we're facing now are just bigger because of COVID, but they're not new. And so with the ACLU Vermont's work in the state, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, what issues have you been dealing with that might feel bigger now, but actually aren't new?
1: So I, one of the major issues that we've had to deal with uh, since the outbreak of COVID, and one of the things we've been focusing on is no different from what we were focusing on before the outbreak, um, which is our our mass incarceration within the state and our Department of Corrections. And as anyone who's been following the news knows, that presents a huge, huge problem when you're having people held in close quarters without the ability to quarantine, without the ability of social distance. Um, And so at the very beginning of this pandemic, that was a clear need was to address that system. It's something we've been talking about for years and years and years, is that we are incarcerating too many people. Um, At this point, we're still we're incarcerating people out of state in Mississippi because we don't have enough capacity in state. And that I think for us, that was one of the first things we were really focused on. And as a result of the changes that were necessitated by COVID, we've actually seen policy in that area accelerate and seen some pretty impressive changes. You know, the, the ACLU of Vermont is part of the nationwide smart justice campaign which is calling for a 50% reduction in our prison population to directly combat the racial disparities that exist within our criminal legal system. And from what that means here in Vermont is at our peak in 2008, we incarcerated 2,200 people. And so our goal is to reduce that down to 1,100 people. So 50% of where we were at the peak. If you look at the numbers right now, Vermont is only incarcerating about 1,350 people, meaning we've made a 38% reduction in our prison population since the beginning of, you know, since the height of 2008. But almost, I think, close to 300 people were let out or not held in prison since the start of the pandemic. And that's without any new laws. That's using discretion. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I found
2: that that so fascinating and wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I shouldn't, you know, just use the word fascinating. Wonderful. Because my understanding was that before the pandemic, a lot of the story or a lot of the explanation for why we had so many people incarcerated was that there was nowhere for them to go if they were released, as if this was an unsolvable problem. And so we had to solve the entire housing system before we could possibly, which means solving the whole zoning system and the whole revenue problem, before we could possibly even begin to think about the correction system. But yeah. what we've seen is that like when there is a will, rapid change is possible and those folks are housed.
1: Yeah, and yeah. I think, but I, and to the point of the cracks that the pandemic exposed, you know, while it showed us this incredible opportunity to think about how our friction system worked, I do think there are many cracks that we're seeing in terms of the systems that exist to support people when they re-enter their communities. So housing is still a concern. You know, we heard from folks though it's great that they were, you know, able to be released, and they were being put out there with nothing more than their shower shoes, and that's a huge concern as well. We can't just, you know, it's not just saying let's have less people incarcerated. It's making sure that people have the supports they need. Um, Housing is huge, um, and that is, in terms of the work that's been happening around the Department of Corrections, that is a major focus, looking at models that work that are supportive, Um, because right now, I think there's something like 100, 100, 50 people inside the Department of Corrections now because we can't find housing. But as you're saying, that's not the whole story. A lot of the story was people either being returned from community supervision um, for things that are technical violations, things that are not new crimes. Um, Vermont returns people. Yeah, sorry about.
2: Technical violations thing, because I don't, um, I think a lot of Vermonters understand that people are released and then returned to prison, but I don't think the nature of how that happens is really cl- as clear to people as it could be. That's a good point, yep.
0: thank you.
1: Thank you for bringing me back. So um, when someone is, say for instance, released from the, 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 the incarcerative setting into the community, usually at this point in time, almost everyone is put on a system that is called furlough in Vermont. And it's not the furlough you would think about, you know, from like the Willie Horton ads, or you know, where someone gets two days off to go to a funeral or something like that. This is a status that says, we're gonna allow you to live in the community. We technically still count you as someone who's incarcerated. The prison walls have been expanded into the community and what then the people get conditions that they're released under. So it might mean that you have to be drug and alcohol free. It might mean you can't associate with certain people. It might mean you have to have uh, housing Um, there's a number of different conditions that are imposed based on you know someone's individual history and their needs and what a technical violation is it's when someone breaks one of those conditions of release so it could be something like you know someone went out and had a beer uh came back to a sober housing unit and that's not unacceptable um that is something that can get people returned to to an incarcerative setting sent back to prison for doing something that wouldn't be a crime if someone who is not under the the supervision of the Department of Corrections, you know, it's not a crime to have a gear, or it's not a crime at this point to have a small amount of cannabis. but if you're under the supervision of the Department of Corrections, those are the type of things that could get someone pulled back into an incarcerative setting because it violated the conditions that they are being supervised in the community.
2: And it's also not a crime to associate with someone who has committed a crime. Um, right, which is a major reason for technical violations. So I don't, I don't want to take us too far off, but I think this is a really interesting topic about what it means when we extend the carceral eye or the carceral state, I like don't want to get to postmodern geeky here, but into families and communities to that degree and what that does to communities, what that does to people's lives and what that does to like the role of government um, and I think that happens with our child protection system almost as much as it happens um, with the furlough correction part of correction.
1: And then so so many times those systems become intertwined. People who are involved, you know, people who are involved with the, the correction system are usually involved with many other different systems within state government, and that's part of the problem. Is those systems aren't always being there to be supportive. They aren't integrated. Um, and then you do have that extension of the prison walls uh, in a way that it can be extremely disruptive. It, it's often not the right thing, helps someone actually be, rehabilitate and become a member of their community again. When any false step can send you back to prison, which then can mean you lose your housing, you lose your job, can lose your kids. So many different things result from, you know, what they I've heard them referred to as small dips. But at sending anyone to prison for any amount of time can be so, so disruptive. And so I think that's part of the reason as a state, we are looking at how we, how we change the community supervision system. That's been one of the big focuses of the work over the last year. And even after the pandemic, it was I was really heartened that um, you know this was a big topic in, in March, um, <laughs> before the pandemic up in Montpelier, and then after the pandemic, it remained a really uh, central topic of discussion and uh, with the limited bandwidth of the legislature, something that people put a lot of really significant work in to try and make improvements to that system.
0: I'm, you know, going back to the, the furlough system, I think what has always caught my attention is, you know, there's this concept, whether it's a good concept or a bad concept, but there's this concept that I think a lot of people operate on that if you go to prison, it's you're supposed to, you know, like do your time. And then when you're you've done your time, you're rehabilitated and you go back to the community and it's supposed to be like a clean slate. And yet it is just not treated that way at all. And so often we send people back to the community and say, well, you, you've changed and you have to change because if you don't, we're going to, you know, here are the ramifications. And yet we send them back to the same environment and situation and conditions that created the problem to begin with. And then say, well, well, but why aren't you changed? Well, and
2: there's also the other side of that where, you know, people are going back to their families and communities, which might be where a behavior or a crime happened in the first place. That's what I mean. It doesn't mean it's not the best possible place for them to be in to return to their, you know, um, return to life. And often that return to home is then criminalized because of whoever else might be in that home or whatever other behaviors might happen in that home, regardless of the actual behavior of the person who is integra- reintegrating.
1: Yeah, and going yes. back go, going back just to the point that you made earlier in terms of exposing some of these cracks, we, we also know that the systems of support for folks who are reentering their communities, they're not the same across the entire state. There are some pretty glaring geographic disparities in what's available from one place to another. So sometimes your ability to successfully reintegrate into the community can often be dependent on what resources are available to you in your specific community? You know, if it's if you can't get transportation to be able to make it to all your scheduled appointments, then that's something that can end up leading you to, you know, you know to end up being reincarcerated. And uh, one thing, so um, someone that we've worked, I worked with for years was formerly incarcerated. And she used to tell me, she, she'd do an exercise where she'd sit down with folks who are, you know, highly professional, uh, and say, okay, here's all the things that I needed to do when I came out of prison. I needed to be at this appointment at this time, this appointment at this time, I need to find a job that's gonna let me take off two hours in the middle of the day to go and see all these different people. I need to see my therapist, I need to see my you know, my, my job counselor, and I'd see my probation officer. And sometimes the restrictions and the structures that we put on top of people as they're trying to, you know, come back from one of the lowest moments in their lives, and rebuild that life, the amount of barriers we put in front of those people sometimes can just prove insurmountable. And that's another thing we need to make sure we're thinking about is providing those resources to actually make it possible. So things like housing and transportation often two of the most important things um, from the from the get-go. And you know this is why in many ways when we look at trying to reform our our, our system and corrections. It's, we need to do so much more upstream in the first place um, in terms of building a society that actually meets people's needs and, and supports people. Because so, often what we see is when people end up in a correction system, I often see that as a failure of our system as a whole. You know, there's usually things that are missing in the first place, supports that should have been there. Um, and also when you look at the amount of people who are in our correction system who've experienced trauma in their lives, serious and significant trauma, we don't have enough supports and systems in place to help people deal with that especially folks who are experiencing that trauma at a really young age so that's another thing we need to be thinking about is you know all the way down to how do we support um you know the youth of this state and support young families
0: so if i remember correctly the aclu vermont has been working on what it is broadly calling uh, smart justice So what are some of the components of that that smart justice initiative that um, one you're working on too that maybe have um, come to fruition?
1: Yeah, so the smart justice campaign has a lot of components. And as I was saying earlier, uh, over this last year we've been focusing quite a bit on the community supervision um, portion of how our system works because after data-driven analysis, we found out that Vermont reincarcerates people on community supervision at the highest rate of any state in the country. So that was a glaring place to start to say, okay, uh, we know this is something we can try and address. One thing we're gonna be trying to talk quite a bit about in the legislature this year um, is about data, is how we can make more data-driven decisions because uh, within our, our system, within our whole criminal legal system, there's so many glaring blind spots where we can see maybe what happened before and what happens after, but you have that black box where it's hard to tell what's driving this. Like we know that black people in Vermont incarcerated about nine times as at a rate about nine times that of, of white vermonters but we like we don't see all the points along the system that helps create that it makes us hard it's hard to figure out exactly what policy levers to pull to try and help address those things we have some data on like
2: without data we just assume that it's implicit bias at the point of arrest or implicit bias in the court but like there's really interesting Parts of that when like more data becomes revealed around like our policies around parole and our policies around release and like what is considered home and what we do with out of state people versus in state like how we even perceive out of state versus in state. It's fascinating and the data shortages in Vermont are
1: vast. So, yeah, vast. (laughs) And so I mean, this is, you know, after working on a number of different issues up in the state house for over a decade, this isn't the first time. That I've had to come forward and say well our data is really lacking and that's what we need is we need more data which often feels like a, a come, kind of an insufficient answer to a question about how do we address this but I think this last year showed us a great example of how having that data can really drive smart policy because that was information people didn't have DOC was not collecting that data they were not analyzing that data it took an outside entity coming into the state with with resources and the ability to to clean up hand data and you know work with the department of corrections to actually figure that out and we said oh well this is a clear problem that we can try and address so um, data is a huge portion of it looking at how our, our community supervision system um, how we can stop returning people um, at, at such high rates we also want to look at sentencing sentencing is a huge huge factor in how long people are incarcerated when you look at the rise of mass incarceration around the country mm-hmm. so much of that was driven by increased sentencing laws and tough on crime legislation um, coming from, you know, in the, in the 80s and into the 90s. And one of the things that's really hard is that sets a floor that as a legislature, it's hard to go back and say, we're actually gonna reduce penalties. You know, I don't think there's a lot of people going around saying I'm tough on crime, but it's still a hard thing to do. Like in seeing some of that debate in the legislature, it's, it's fascinating, but it's an essential component of, of the work.
2: It is and to unpack, you know, I I think unpacking popular stories in the legislature is one of the most difficult things to do. Um, And, you know, I've only been trying to do it for two years and I imagine that the longer I stay, the more those stories will become my stories and it will become even harder to unpack them because then they're mine and not someone else's. But understandings, about, like understanding evidence-based decision-making around recidivism and the ages that people tend to um, reoffend, how long an effective set, like how long, an e- if you have an assumption that the point of sentencing is sort of prevention of future crimes, there's so much evidence that like pretty much after what, two years, like there's no point in keeping someone incarcerated anymore, unless like, you know, you're talking about like the one in the million, like, you know, Silence of the Lambs kind of situation. But beyond that, it's like tiny sentences are all that's needed for effective punishment if you believe in punishment at all.
1: Yeah, and one of the big things is that the, the, the punishments are swift and they're known and there's not you're not seeing huge variations in them. That's one of the biggest factors in terms of whether or not any sort of punishment can be rehabilitative, um, but you're exactly right. The length of sentence times is not usually tied to any sort of social science data, it's, no. it's tied to I think largely this this, um, desire to punish people and what is the necessary punitive um, sentence we can impose when if we're looking at things through the lens of public safety, that's not always necessary and also can be detrimental. Sometimes the longer you keep someone incarcerated, the more likely they are gonna be to develop a higher uh, criminogenic risk. Uh, And so looking at things that we can try and reduce those sentences to the point where social science says it makes sense while still balancing the needs of victims to feel um, that their voices are heard, that their, their interests are being taken into account, um, are all really important. But we've gotten so far out of whack and so skewed uh, beyond where we used to be years ago. And I, that's one of the biggest drivers. So that was one disappointment I had in this last legislative session. There was a really strong piece of legislation um, around felony, um, felony sentences for property crimes that made its way through the House um, and then made his way to the Senate, but just didn't make it all the way through because of the limited time to COVID. But you know, Vermont has one of the lowest felony thresholds in all of New England, where if you commit a crime, a property crime, that the value is $900 or more, that's considered a felony, um, which can be to, hugely, hugely detrimental.
2: I'd love to unpack that a little bit for our Wyndham County folks to really understand the impact in our county and our community specifically. So if you look at crimes that are often, committed because someone is seeking um, opioids that they are not able to obtain, Um, they don't have the money to obtain them otherwise. It's often property crimes that you would find. And so if someone is doing that and they receive a felony conviction because of that, the impact on the larger system in terms of the cost to all of us, their opportunities to seek treatment is so far exacerbated when um, If it wasn't a felony, sort of the path to treatment and the path to community is much shorter and easier. And if you talk to um, our prosecutor down here, she will say that if, you know, property crimes were pretty much sort of taken off the table, she would have very, very little to do. And she's happy to have that happen.
0: (laughs) So a question for both Emily and Falco here, you know, we have this story in Vermont that we are so progressive and open hearted and, and community minded, which is definitely true in one sense, but as you're describing some of the, the issues with our uh, criminal system, it seems like it's a little Salem witch trials burn the witch punitive puritanical here any thoughts on why that is like why is vermont operating that way when maybe other states in new england are not
1: you want to take this first or should i
0: i'm
2: happy to i can start um i don't i you know we we have a deep puritan thing happening here always and that's definitely true i also think it's one of the um It's another one of those places in our system where our low resource capacity and our small administrative structures also makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So um, we have very few judges. We have a very small judicial system. Um, And so in some ways that should make it more nimble, but it also means that fewer people are making decisions. Those decisions um, have less eyes on them. We don't do jury trials. we you know things are you know our public defenders are incredibly under resourced our prosecutors are incredibly under resourced everyone is just trying to get everything like through the door out the door as fast as they possibly can um and the time for sort of the evidence-based decision making and the community input um is not there and so i think often it's more that than um Necessarily, the puritanical stuff, which is like definitely in the background, um, but not the foreground of why we fail.
1: Yeah, and I think I think one thing that, from my perspective, is when you know we're we're part of the United States of America. I think that's a really important piece of context to understand. Is the United States of America jails more people per capita than I think almost anywhere else in the entire entire world? Like we. Jail significant significant portions of our population, and while Vermont, inside of the U.S. context, has has one of the lowest rates of incarceration per capita, we're still part of that larger system. We, it's, I guess, in some ways, it's an implicit bias that we have towards over incarceration. And you also look at you look at what's happening in states around us. This is what the normal is. This is what the expectation is. And it's those stories that we've been told for years and years. And so much of this is. Um, you know, building up this, this idea that there's a necessity to be tough on crime, um, and I think it also goes back to some of the roots that exist within our criminal legal system um, in terms of control of communities of color. I think that is also a, a motivator that exists within a lot of incarceral settings, and then has been systema- systematically adopted across the country. You have some of that slippage where you see what one state is doing, other states say, "Well, if that makes sense for them, we'll do that as well." I think that's how you saw a lot of that creep in terms of how many people were incarcerating, how we think about our systems. We think about incarceration completely differently than you know, say some of the, the Scandinavian countries that think about incarceration. They are not looking to build you know, mega prison complexes that house people for extended amounts of times. They are more focused on rehabilitation. Um, so I think there's a lot to unpack there, but I think part of it is like, we are part of the United States of America, which has built a system of mass incarceration. Um, And I think Vermont's doing a good job of trying to reckon with that and understand what that means for us, but in some ways, you know, the the starting block for us is is changed because of the air we're breathing and how the systems around us all work. Um, Because, you know, we in many ways Vermont does better at corrections policies than many other places in the the country, but that's still not very good when you look around the rest of the world and how other people would create similar systems.
0: Thank you. We need to go to break to hear from some of our underwriters here on WVEW one hundred seven point seven LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. Stay tuned, Emily Kornheiser and Mel- LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and if you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro, as well as Falco Schilling, who is the Advocacy Director of ACLU Vermont. And Emily, do we need to remind our listeners of something?
2: We do. The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the guest, the host whoever else is in the Zoom room, but not of the radio station or the TV station or Facebook or Mark Zuckerberg or anyone else involved in any of this. It's just ours, the people who are speaking.
0: And we are owning that. And on that note, I think it's it's good for us to shift with, with Falco. Um, one thing I find interesting about the conversation we were just having around um, incarceration you know, there's so many places, I think, in, in, especially in society, but in Vermont, where different needs overlap. And I have sat and covered events where victim, victims of crime are talking and they feel that um, Vermont's system is too lenient and doesn't meet their needs enough. And it, it brings me to, to questions of, say, you know, what do we do? when so many of these rights or these needs interact. And I think um, hate speech, hate crime, the First Amendment, white supremacy, these are all other places where um, pieces of um, our community might actually be at at odds with each other. Um, Is there anything around that that the ACLU is working on right now? And how do you kind of balance those two pieces of the same coin?
1: So that, that's a really interesting question. And I think it's a place where a lot of conversations are coming right now um, in this state and a lot of different spaces. I know um, Representative Kornheiser and I both participate in the Social Equity Caucus, um, which is a group of, of legislators, community leaders who come together to talk about pressing issues regarding social equity. And this has been one of the hottest topics in, in terms of this conversation, because we wish that some of the, you know, the white supremacy and the other problems we're hearing about around the country were isolated to places around the country, but they're not. Um, the problems exist. Racism exists here in Vermont. White supremacy is, exists here in Vermont, and we need to be able to deal with those problems. What it becomes uh, somewhat difficult in terms of how we address them um, is thinking about: is this a place that legislation is the correct answer? And so the the, the ACLU of Vermont. Um, one of our core values is, is you know, we defend and protect the Constitution of the United States. And the First Amendment is an area where it can be really difficult for um, folks who have really, really good intentions, um, who want to try and protect people who feel like they're being victimized, um, in terms of whether or not there's actual legislation that can move forward that would do that without infringing on people's First Amendment rights. So the ACLU is a strong defender of the First Amendment for folks that. And know our organization this has often led us to taking some controversial positions um, such as as advocating for for neo-nazis to march in the streets of Skokie Illinois um, which was at, at the time the the town with the largest percentage of Holocaust survivors which is not something that I would personally support um, but it's something that we we intervene to support their First Amendment right to do that and it's something that it's it's a it's a hard tension to try and deal with so when we look at First Amendment issues, we look at issues related to hate speech and hate crimes, that's one of the things we have to be very careful about is how is the government regulating the speech of others and to what extent, Um, because that is a place where you have to, there's, there's very few things the state can do in terms of regulating speech that are acceptable and would be constitutional and so part of our job as advocates is to try and let legislators know when they might be running afoul of the Constitution, because no one wants to pass a law that they then have to go defend in court and have it struck down. Um, that's something well, like, that no feel one
2: like doing that sometimes, like the GMO <laughs> the law. Like, I think people are. I think I think actually Vermonters are a little bit more into that than
1: having worked on that law for multiple years. <laughs> it was not struck down in court. <laughs> But (laughs) that's a that's a story for another day. Actually, Uh, that would be
0: an interesting story for another day. I'm going to make note of that.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah. Wearing a previous hat. (laughs)
0: Yeah, And I, I more mean that that was
2: the, you know, the concern in the State House before it passed. It was one of those places where we were running a foul of, you know, commerce, etc.
1: Yeah, very much so. And also a First Amendment issue, strangely enough, that was First Amendment compelled commercial speech.
2: As is some of the cannabis signage and advertising. Um, So I'm really um, had a very interesting experience a few months ago. Um, And so I've, you know, um, being Jewish in Vermont, being the person I am in Vermont, I have, I am not surprised when people tell me about white supremacy behavior here. I know some I know that's new for some people who have been able to live their lives in white peace, Um, but it's certainly hasn't been a surprise to me, but what was a really interesting disturbing experience that I had recently was I got a briefing from um, a division of the Department of Homeland Security that um, just collects information. And before that started, I, you know, have certainly within the Trump era, um, heard about how, you know, Black Lives Matter and whatever Antifa is, um, were being targeted. I, you know, my past political history, long before legislative office, definitely tended more towards Black Bloc than towards, um, you know, standard liberal Democrat lines. And so I was really concerned before this briefing started that I was going to be hearing about, you know, how Black Lives Matter was bringing down the universe um, and was pleasantly surprised that the focus of the briefing was really on white supremacist behavior in Vermont. Um, And that domestic terrorism for this division of Homeland Security was absolutely about white supremacy and not about, you know, and um, sort of different sects within that and not about Um, Antifa or Black Lives Matter or whatever sort of rhetoric the Trump administration has been pushing but it was still really interesting and disturbing to hear the particular line that they walked down about what their appropriate role is and what their appropriate role isn't as a division. And so they were talking a lot about how they are aware of activity um, but they can't do anything about activity and so they can have that awareness, and they can share that awareness, but they can't act on that awareness. And so, on some level, I'm just uncomfortable that my life is being tracked. And you know, um, in the Commerce Committee, we certainly began some really interesting conversations about privacy and digital privacy and all of that. Um, But also really interested in the fact that in Vermont, we have this awareness of really intensive white supremacist organizing and behavior that we have no mechanism legally to do anything about. And so people are really upset with the Scott administration and particularly with the Department of Public Safety for saying this isn't our role um, because no crimes have been officially committed. And I think it's probably true that if different people were doing it in a different context, um, probably someone would find a way to intervene, perhaps illegally. Um, And there's definitely a lot of culture at play there. But what I'm interested, and I know that there's pressure for us to change the laws so that someone could act, so that the police could act on some of that white supremacist organizing. But what I'm really interested in is what, what would be a legal administrative apparatus to prevent that behavior? So, you know, we know that there's re- some really good countering violent extremism work that happens overseas, um, say in French speaking Africa. We know that there's been some really progressive, fascinating anti gang work that's happened in other states that doesn't come out of police departments, it comes out of um, development agencies or social service agencies. That's much more human much more proactive and not um about surveillance and targeting and so i'm trying to get my head around sort of what that side of the conversation is rather than trying to get government eyes into every citizen's home to police their individual behavior
1: so i I think you are you are leading to to the right answer just with the how you set up your question because when we think about these issues you know our concern is whether the government, especially in the area of speech, is curtailing the speech of a private citizen, which is different, which is significantly different from encouraging programs for positive social change. So that's a place that we we are fully fully supportive of programs like that, especially if they're run outside of law enforcement agencies that can create positive community change. That's something that is something the state can 100% do. Um, But there are, you know, there are limitations in terms of some of the restrictions on speech and other things, and it's really limited to the immediate incitement of violence. That is kind of that threshold when we're talking about this, which for a lot of people, rightfully so, does not, is not comforting. That, that immediate threat of violence, people are saying there should be something um, that we should be able to do before that. Um, so I think one, any piece of legislation, we would always have to look at and it have to be very specific in terms of where we come down, is this something that we can support or not support but we are fully supportive of efforts to try and curb domestic terrorism and white supremacy within the state because we think it's essential to build the state where everyone who calls this Vermont home feels comfortable and feels like they're a part of this state. And there's no no more of that that othering that I think is something that happens within the state of Vermont when you are not part of the traditional uh, majority. Um, And I think we are seeing a lot of backlash from that because there's a lot of people speaking up and saying Vermont does not just look one way. We can't just look one way. And we need to be moving on beyond this traditional idea of, you know, that some people have. And so there there are some real serious threats. And I will say, as we led up to the election work, this was part of our struggle. You know, we were trying to think of how do we respond? We were, you know, ACLU Vermont, ACLU National, we had a scenario playbook of, I think there's, you know, 14 different scenarios that we need, major possible scenarios we need to be watching out for. Um, but one of our big concerns is being an open carry state. Would there be open intimidation of voters at the polls, um, knowing that there was people playing to to protest or possibly protest in the wake of an attempt to steal the election? What would people have to be, how could you know, How where would people be and would there be a threat to people gathering um, from people who are armed and, and hoping to incite violence? Um, so luckily we didn't see, uh, And that within this election context this year, which we're really thankful for, but it was really an eye opener about the need to be thinking about those things. Those are things we wish we weren't having to think about and to consider, but it's reality. It's the world that we live in these days. Um, So I think, sorry.
2: I spoke to our town clerk quite a bit about the dynamic between um making sure that everyone feels safe voting and what helps someone feel safe. So for one person that might be actually bringing their gun with them. For another person it might be having a police officer there and for other people having the police there would make them feel much less safe while voting. And so it becomes this just it's in, when we all have such different senses of who is on our side and where our you know, freedom is maximized. I think it makes it really hard to navigate these really difficult conversations as communities when we have so few places where we can speak across that difference.
1: Yeah, and there's there's so many considerations. And I have to say that I, I think the the Secretary of State and the AG's office did a good job um, trying to help support town clerks because they were, the work that they were doing in this last election was, was just incredible to the point where, you know, we are going through things like All right what if someone refuses to wear a mask when they're voting well we have a mask mandate that's another place where you have that weird that intersection of what is my personal freedom um, you know my right to vote uh, versus a state-imposed mandate how does how do those two interact and I think they struck the right balance they said here's a here's a ballot go fill it out outside bring it right back in your vote will count Um, if people refuse to they kind of put them off in the corner but that was one of I think this election in particular and the run up to it, we were seeing so many of those freedoms bumping up against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think folks did a really good job trying to find that right balance, but it's it, the conversation is never gonna stop. I think that's part of it. Um, we are right now working with a racial equity task force that's been convened with the governor um, who's looking specifically at these issues. What can the state do? Um, what proposals can we put forward? So I'd say look forward for some of those recommendations. They should be coming out soon. Um, they have had one round of recommendations. Some of these will deal more directly with hate speech um, and hate crimes, but it's you know it's a, it's good to have that open dialogue. Um, and I think it's 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 interesting. Um, there was a conversation that happened in the Social Equity Caucus with the uh, state's attorneys coming in talking about how they charge hate crimes. And one of the, the some there was some comment saying, "Well, let's hope to get the Defender General's Office and the ACLU." On the in the chair on this so we can put them in the hot seat because they're saying we should be decriminalizing and we should be uh, you know not locking people up for all these crimes we'll see what they say now I'm like I, our position's pretty consistent like we are not for criminalizing this behavior though we think there are ways to encourage it um, encourage um, more positive behavior I think it's one of these things where it there's always that tension and it sometimes you feel like it's it's you're you're on an interesting side of the issue but um, that's part of why I do enjoy working for the ACLU because you, you have to have that larger view. And in particular, I think one thing that's a point that we always talk about when it comes to, to hate speech and hate crimes, the over, over-criminalization of that behavior, while the intent might be good, can often be misused and directed at marginalized communities because as we see within our, our criminal justice system um, or our criminal legal system, as, as many people like to refer to because it, it's not always that just. Um, what we see is that when those laws are on the books, they're often targeted at marginalized groups and communities of colors as a way to reinforce the existing social order.
2: No, it's one of, you know, it's one of the many places where if you're only keeping your eye on the short term, you're going to lose the long-term gains that are needed on this. And that's, you know, true across most of our system, but particularly when it comes to our rights. Mm
0: -hmm. I, I, for what's standing out to me right now, and both of you touched on this is that tension between solutions and where those solutions can actually be found and i think often we're like well let's just make a law about this when perhaps the law is not the best way to go um and and there are some social solutions that that might be better or vice versa we're trying to do a social solution and what we need is is legislation um The other thing that is standing out to me right now is, and I think I've said this before, it fascinates me in this country how we are so um, adamant about our rights and we say, well, I have the right to do this, I have the right to do that, and yet we so rarely have conversations about responsibility that living in a free society actually carries a lot of responsibility, and we so rarely have those conversations. You know, just because you have the right to say something, you know, that may not be the best use of your right.
2: Well, and, you know, I think the masks um, and Thanksgiving behaviors are, you know, an yep. interesting example of that. Um, I've been really struggling with many of our administration's responses to the pandemic lately, which were, basically shutting down what can happen um, in in public spaces and maintaining, and I mean public and commercial and non-commercial, so basically shutting down things that can happen in non-commercial spaces while still allowing things that happen in commercial spaces with the assumption that commercial spaces are somehow better regulated and the implications for that long-term are very disturbing to me and the latest example that I caught and I did not listen to the press conference. I just read Jane Lynn tweet threads from them. So like, maybe this is not the most perfect sourcing of information, but she is a journalist Mm -hmm. Um, and so (laughs) in a good one. And it, you know, she puts them in quotes when they're quotes but this idea that children in schools are being are going to be asked what their families did over thanksgiving and that there might be implications for those families from that and that the home is going to be policed in the public sphere by an institution has like such huge disturbing implications for me. And I know that we are in a pandemic and we want to survive and I am not going to like go around unmasked. I'm not saying we should all go around unmasked, but when you open a door, like closing that door is very difficult and the implications around, you know, like Salem witch trials and like like Soviet Stasi, like it's just, it's very, I'm gonna stop talking because I'm a little, Or
0: Minority Report. It's, it was yeah. a great movie, but not a world I wanna live in. Um, but you I- know? I,
2: hmm? I wanna know what Falco thinks
1: about that. I mean, I, in terms of, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of places where those, those things interact. And I'd say when the original masking mandate came out, that was something that was a big discussion um, in the ACLU, not just here in Vermont, but around the country is like, what does that mean? And it, it, the pandemic has made us question, you know, where, where are we drawing those lines? And, and as a, a civil liberties organization, we have to be very thoughtful about that, both in terms of public health, but also trying to protect those long-term civil liberties. So, you know, things like the masking mandates that took us some internal discussion, we are supportive of them, but there's also things that we say like they should be um, because masking can also be um, detrimental in terms of how those mandates are implemented, especially for communities of color, where you will see them disproportionately enforced against um, people of color who are not wearing masks, or you also see people people of color who are then stopped or questioned because they are wearing a mask, even though there's a mandate. And so one of the things we have to take into account is, how are these laws going to be enforced what are the impacts on communities that might not be, that? that, those honestly were not the first things I thought of when I was hearing about masking mandates. I was thinking about public health, but then it was one of those things we had to step back and say, how are other people going to experience this? And, you know, there are concerns. We get a lot of folks writing to us and telling us about what we should be doing. Um, on many many topics all the time because I found that Ew, the, ACL, the yeah, ACLU honey. is kind of like a that. Rorschach where everyone else sees something differently and like what our mission is what we should be doing uh, and we have gotten some stuff around the pandemic and, and masks and other things like that um, but I do think it's it's especially hard to balance that with the needs for, for public health guidance and you know I think there are especially if you're talking about the government surveillance state there's a lot of places where there are some very concerning trends coming out of this pandemic how people are using data how people are are being tracked um, and also the use of private companies to do that and then influence govern- government government decision making because right now most of our data is not coming from from you know some government big brother it's coming from all those keystrokes we make and all those apps we log into and all the like all of that is then fed back into places where the government can then buy the data um, because they're, they're having someone else collect it for you because you've so my, given up.
2: My son does, like all, does a health check in a smartphone app every morning that gets sent to his school that they're using to track COVID at the school. And no one at the school ever sent me like, like I didn't have to sign off on it. I was never sent privacy policies. I have no idea if it's subject to, was it SOPA? I think that's what it's called, the school. Yes. Yeah. SOPA. Um, I've like, and to be perfectly honest, I have not found the time to, you know, dun- read
1: all those user agreements because no one ever does.
2: No one ever does, right? And it's just, yeah, it's mind boggling the data that we are releasing between. Well,
1: on, on a plus side, I will say, in terms of that, Vermont did make it a big first step this year in terms of stopping the use of some of that data and you're speaking about Minority Report, Um, in the policing reforms that came out at the end of this very extended session, Vermont became the first state in the nation to to ban the use of law enforcement uh, surveillance facial surveillance software. So this is something we're starting to see in police departments across the country where they're using facial recognition technology to scan crowds for people um, or to scan footage and then make positive IDs and this is really problematic because we know that it disproportionately misidentifies people of color, women, and especially people of indigenous descent. And so there's stories about people who are getting picked up and arrested for doing absolutely nothing just because a computer algorithm told them, this is, this is the person you're looking for. So it's, it's something that I think Vermont made a really smart step as we're proliferating. Um, the, the amount of data that's being collected, the amount of places that the government can be more and more invasive without you know, through the private market without their own actions, um, stopping law enforcement from using that type of, you know, invasive and inaccurate technology. I just want to give a quick shout out to all the, the legislators here in Vermont who did take an important step on that.
0: Thank you, Falco, for bringing that up. We are just about out of time. I mean, whew, this, this show just flew by. I'm amazed. And I feel like we've only touched the top of the iceberg. So I'm hoping we can have you or someone from the ACLU back again in the future. Um, Falco, if people want to find out more about the ACLU or if they have a question um, about their civil liberties, where do they go?
1: Um, go to acluvt.org, or you can find us on Facebook um, as well as Instagram. Uh, you'll get to see our posts and updates and when you're there, sign up for our email list and you get emails from folks like me letting me know how you can get involved and, and then also how you can bug people like Emily uh, when it comes to important issues in front of the legislature.
0: Thank you, Falco Schilling, Advocacy Director for ACLU Vermont. And Emily, where can we find you?
2: I really like it when people bug me. And the best way <laughs> to find me is at emilycornheiser.org where you can find a link to my Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email, phone number, weekly community conversation coffee hour via zoom at 10 a.m. every Saturday links for all of those things as well as past episodes of a happy
0: hour are all
2: there at emilycornheiser.org.
0: And as always, you can find the Montpelier happy hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station every Friday at 2 p.m. You can also find us on BCTV, Emily's YouTube channel and the sound our Vermontitude SoundCloud Facebook page. Have a great weekend, everyone. Before we go, Emily, do you have a toast so we can send everyone off in style? I
2: have an empty glass, so sorry. I need one second. No
0: toasting with an empty glass, no. No,
2: no. Um, so the balance between community and freedom and each of us fighting every day
0: to make each of those things better and stronger. Thank you. Here, here, everyone. Have a great weekend. Cheers.